Welcome to episode 4 of Matthew Linity, critical study of Matthew and masculinity. This is a series in which I'll be navigating the world of Matthewian research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. In this episode, episode 4, we'll be exploring numerous interpretations of the meaning of the number 14 in Matthew 1.17. Namely, why is it so important that the number of generations should be 14 plus 14 plus 14? As if there's some significance attached to the number 14, but then the text doesn't tell us what it all means. What do we do about this gap in the text? And what do we do about having so many interpretations of this gap? And finally, how is this relevant to masculinity? Are you ready to join me in an adventure in search of the lost meaning of the number 14 in the beginning of the book of Matthew? Biblical commentators are very interested in what is in the text. But what do we do when there's a gap in the text? When the text leaves open a gap. We know it's a gap because the text calls attention to it. Verse 17 points out the number 14 three times, but leaves out the explanation of what it means. Why does the text call attention to the number 14? What's so important about the number 14 in Matthew chapter 1? The answer is not given in the text. So just to remind us what Matthew chapter 1 verse 17 says. It says, Therefore all the generations from Abraham until David are fourteen generations. And from David until the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon until the Messiah... 14 generations. Last time I talked about how it was time for the Messiah to arrive according to this three-part structure of the genealogical account. And this time we're looking at how does the number 14 contribute to this idea? Last time, in episode 3, I bracketed out the whole issue of what's going on with the 14s. And I only talked about what was going on with a three-part structure, as if the number 14 was not important. I interpret it as though it's really just the end point of each of the three parts that are significant. And these three end points are related somehow. But what about what's going on with the 14s? Every time I read Matthew 1, 17... I hear about these three groups of 14, and I think, yeah, yeah, okay, what's going on with the 14s? And I'm on the edge of my seat, waiting to find out what's so significant about the number 14. Unfortunately, the text never says. The text doesn't explain why 14 is important. Is 14 meant to represent something? Are we supposed to add 14 and 14 and 14 together so as to total 
42. And I guess at this point, there'd be some fans of Douglas Adams out there who would smile knowingly and think, hmm, 42. But on a serious note, what are we supposed to do with the number 14? Is 14 important or not important? On the one hand, it is possible to interpret our verse without bothering with the number 14. But on the other hand, we have an abundance of interpretations that do depend on the number 14 and its significance. And most of these interpretations require us to read something into the text. The text doesn't say if the number 14 is meant to signify something, but the text does seem to suggest that 14 might be important to understand. So the text creates a gap. So we have all these interpretations that try to read something into this gap. We have all these interpretations that say, oh yes, 14 is very significant. Even though the text doesn't say what this significance is. So we've got this gap in the text. What do we do with this gap? How does 14 contribute to the meaning of the verse when the verse isn't telling us? Now there's a variety of answers that can be found. So I've compiled 14 different interpretations that try to address this gap in the text. I'd like to invite listeners to think about which is their preferred interpretation. Which one is your favourite interpretation? Or which one resonates the most with you? I've tried to include a large variety of interpretations. And first off, I'm going to begin with what I'm calling Interpretation Zero. Interpretation Zero. It's all about not reading much into the gap. It's all about minimizing the significance of the number 14. So it has close to zero significance. The interpretation that I gave last episode, in episode 3, could be called a kind of interpretation zero, because I completely neglected the number 14 in the interpretation that I gave. Another kind of interpretation zero is the kind of interpretation that says 14's just a nice number. It's just a nice round number. Or it's just a conventional number. So for example, 14 is just a nice way of grouping groups of generations. And 14 was, in fact, a nice rounded number in the first century. Today I might say, I'll see you in 15 minutes, when I don't mean exactly 15 minutes necessarily. But in the first century, 14 was a rounded number even more so than 15. So we find 14 high priests listed in the book of Chronicles between Aaron until Azariah at the time of the first temple. And then Chronicles gives another eight high priests 
from the time of Azariah. And if we add the six high priests from Nehemiah, we've got another group of 14 high priests. And likewise, we find the same thing in the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, which goes back to about the 2nd century, in the Mishnah Tractate Avot, it speaks of a chain link of traditions of 14 generations. And this is why Charles Talbot says that to the earliest readers and hearers of Matthew, they wouldn't need to try and draw some significance from the number 14. The number 14 would be quite expected and unsurprising. So basically we've got this idea of counting by a set, a full set of 14 for a lineage in both the priestly tradition and the rabbinic tradition. So this idea of counting an entire lineage using the number 14 seems to be a thing in the first century. Counting a set lineage as 14, even though in these two cases it's a different kind of lineage that's being inherited. In the case of counting 14 high priests, it's a blood lineage, but in the case of counting a rabbinic lineage, it's not a bloodline that's being inherited. Instead, it's a succession of leaders. So it's a lineage of leadership. When this comparison is made with the 14 generations in Matthew, counting the 14 high priests and counting the 14 proto-rabbinic leaders, when we make this comparison, it's really a comparison which ends up with an interpretation zero, or what I'm calling a kind of interpretation zero, because even in Finkelstein's interpretation, it sounds like he's saying that the number 14 is significant. It has mystical significance, Finkelstein says. But actually, he's saying that 14 is only significant because of the number 7. It's simply a multiple of the number 7, and any multiple of the number 7 is significant only because its association with the number 7 as a sacred number. Also, counting by 14s is a common idea among Greco-Roman philosophers. In the Greco-Roman philosophical schools, they would count 14 generations from the founding teacher until the newest head of the academy. So I'll quote from Burton Vizotsky in his book Aphrodite and the Rabbis. He's talking about the chain of Greek philosophy that's handed down from generation to generation. And I quote, It does not make any difference whether those 14 generations took 100 years or 500 years. Accuracy in counting years was not the point. Getting from the newest head of the academy back to the founder of the school in but 14 links is what it's all about. This oddity also can be observed in the New Testament, where Jesus' lineage is traced in groups of 14. And were we to laboriously count out the chain from Moses at Sinai to Rabbi Yohanan and his disciples, we'd get the same magic number, 14. No one knows why 14 seems to be the correct number of links, but Pirke of Volt joins with all the philosophical schools in tracing its newest leader's lineage back to the founder in 14 generations. So this idea of counting in groups of 14 generations is simply conventional. 
Okay, so interpretation zero is trying not to say much. It's trying not to import much into the significance of 14. So it's time to look at interpretation number one. Interpretation number one. It's all about the name David. Interpretation number one is the most popular interpretation in the commentaries. In this interpretation, 14 represents the number of the name David. The name David is equal to the number 14. If we read each letter of the name as a numeral, this only works in Hebrew, it doesn't work in Greek. But David is a Hebrew name. So when we write the letters of the name David, Dalit, Vav, Dalit, it's like saying 4 plus 6 plus 4. So the letters of the alphabet can also be numerals. The first letter of the alphabet can be read as number 1. The second letter can be read as number two. So each letter of the alphabet can also be read as a numeral. There are different systems after the tenth letter of the alphabet, whether you count 11, 12, 13, or 20, 30, 40, which is easier for counting higher numbers. But the name David doesn't take us past the tenth letter. We've got the fourth letter plus the sixth letter of the alphabet plus the fourth letter, four plus six plus 4, which is 14. So on this interpretation, when verse 17 says, Therefore all the generations from Abraham till David are 14, and from David to the exile 14, and from the exile to the Christos 14, it's really saying, notice, this is the number of David. It's saying it three times. Notice the number of David, notice the number of David, notice the number of David. But why mention it three times? The writer could have just pointed it out once. So it's a good guess as far as interpretations go. And I suspect that why it's the most popular is actually a confusion with another interpretation that's coming up in interpretation number 10. But interpretation 1, it seems to rely on the idea of some kind of Davidic kingdom that's being revived when... It's not at all clear that it's a Davidic kingdom that Jesus is reviving. In fact, it seems that the book of Matthew would say it's not a Davidic kingdom that arrives, but a much greater kingdom, what the book of Matthew calls the kingdom of the heavens, a cosmic reign or realm. Interpretation number two. It's similar to interpretation one, but it's about finding a Hebrew name that adds up to three times 14. Now, this interpretation is the least popular interpretation because I've never come across <laughs> this interpretation before, but I noticed that if we take the system of counting called misparsuduri, where each letter represents one more than the letter before. So just the basic system of counting one 
to 22. If we use this system, then there is a name that adds up to 3 times 14. 3 14s are 42. And on this system of counting, the name Abraham is equivalent to the number 42. Well, only if it's spelt with an aleph just before the final mem. Otherwise, it only totals 41. The common spelling of Abraham only totals 41. So the second interpretation includes all three 14s. 14 and 14 and 14 gives us the number of the name Abraham. So it would seem at least as likely that if there is a name that adds up to 42, we should consider it. Now, does this make the first interpretation more likely or less likely? Perhaps it makes it more likely if we combine the two. So we can combine the first interpretation and the second interpretation and say, oh, it's the number of David and it's the number of Abraham, which would be a nice frame ending for verse 1, which says that Jesus the Christos is both of David and of Abraham. So perhaps the first interpretation and the second interpretation assist each other. Interpretation number three. It's all about the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, we have stories of the ancient Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in chapter 33, the book of Numbers gives the 42 stations, the 42 encampments of the journey. So by the end of the book of Numbers, the Israelites are just about to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. So the number 42 is significant this interpretation goes back to the 3rd century. Jason Hood has revived this theory, but it goes back to Oregon in the 3rd century, where he points out that these 42 stations along the way in the wilderness can be related to the 42 stages in the genealogical account of the first chapter of Matthew. And Jason Hood points out that the number 40 and the 42 can sometimes influence each other, so the number 40 can be representing the wilderness, and the number 42 can also represent the wilderness. By the time the book of Joshua was translated into Greek, the years of wandering in the wilderness become the number 42, which means we could even think of 42 as symbolizing the entire wilderness generation prior to being able to gain entry into the land. So in this interpretation... Just as we have 42 stages of the journey through the wilderness to arrive in the promised land, we have 42 stages in the genealogy to arrive at the one called Christos. In other words, the wilderness wandering, the time in the wilderness, has come to an end. The leader who will lead the people into the promised land, out of the wilderness, and cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, this leader has arrived in the new Joshua.
Interpretation number four. It's all about Isaac. Interpretation four is based on the idea that the number 42 signifies Isaac. In this interpretation, the number 42 is a reference to the disturbing story of when Isaac was almost sacrificed in the book of Genesis, but not how the story is told in the book of Genesis, but according to how the story is told in the book of Jubilees. The book of Jubilees was written before the book of Matthew. The book of Jubilees retells the book of Genesis and it retells all the stories according to when they occur in a particular point in a Jubilee cycle. So everything is retold within the chronology of a series of Jubilee cycles. So Jubilees 49 years and according to the book of Jubilees Isaac was about to be sacrificed at the beginning of the 42nd Jubilee. This is an interpretation given by Roy Rosenberg in 1965 and recently been revived by Leroy Huizenga. So this interpretation is saying that the writer is asserting that Jesus is born at the beginning of the 42nd generation, just like in the book of Jubilees, where Isaac is about to be sacrificed at the beginning of the 42nd Jubilee. So 42 Jubilees after the creation of the world. So basically this is a reference to Isaac. It's meant to suggest that Jesus arrives in order to be a new Isaac. Jesus is the new Isaac who will be a sacrifice. There's a few differences in the way the story of Isaac is told in the book of Jubilees. For instance, in the book of Jubilees, Isaac is an adult. He's about 23 years old. And not only is he an adult, but he's willingly complicit. He's fully consensual to the idea of becoming a human sacrifice. So there's a few differences with the story in Genesis. Now, according to the book of Jubilees, not only is Isaac complicit in the plan to become a burnt offering, but the date on which this event is occurring is on the 14th day of the first month. And this is an idea that we see picked up in interpretation number eight. But according to interpretation number four, 14 and 14 and 14 could be a reference to the potential sacrifice of Isaac in the book of Jubilees, which contains a reference to both the number 42 and to the number 14, being the 14th of the first month. Interpretation number five. It's all about the 490 years spoken about in the book of Daniel, which speaks of seven times 70 years. So in the book of Daniel, this 490 year period begins at the beginning of the period of exile into Babylon, and it ends, it comes to an end after 490 years with the arrival of a new messianic kingdom. So how does this apply to Matthew? Well, we've got 14 generations, and if a generation is set at 35 years, it gives us 
490 years. And this is the theory that George Moore proposed in 1921. And he gave a few examples where a generation could be set at 35 years using ancient sources. But there's another example that would boost this interpretation because it was considered to be a 70-year period that the initial exile lasted. And according to the book of Matthew, we have two generations that are born during this exilic period. Actually, the exile affects three generations, but the third returns from exile, and the first had already lived for a generation before going into exile. So it's like only counting the two new generations born during the exile. Two full generation lengths are counted, even though three ancestors are affected. Seventy years spaced out over three generations if you count the first, second and third, but only two generations if we count the spaces between. It's like counting the spaces between the first and third generations. In other words, two segments worth of generations. So we could split this 70-year exilic period into two generations, giving us 35 years per generation, which then gives us the 490 years from the beginning of the exile until the arrival of the Messianic Kingdom. Interpretation number six. It's all about the moon, the lunar cycle. 14 gives us roughly half a lunar cycle. A lunar cycle being about 29 and a half days. So it would really be 14 days and three quarter days. But 14 is roughly half of a lunar cycle. And the Jewish calendar is based on a lunar calendar, so that the first day of each month is a new moon. So some months are rounded down to 29 days, some months rounded up to 30 days. But if we think of 14 as roughly half a lunar cycle, then we can see Abraham as representing a new moon leading up until the time of David the king, which is a full moon. It takes 14 more days to reach the full moon of David. And then another 14 days, the moon winds down or wanes away to nothing, to no moon. So we have the Babylonian exile at a new beginning. And then this new beginning, after 14 more days or generations brings the arrival of the Messiah. This interpretation has been suggested several times over the centuries by Bengal, Renford and Kaplan and more recently John Fenton and Herbert Basser. This interpretation is relatively simple because it only requires Abraham to be a new moon, David to be a full moon, exile to be a new moon, and then the Messiah to arrive as the full moon. So this interpretation fits nicely the three stages I spoke about last time in episode three. Interpretation number seven. 
Interpretation number seven. It's all about the number seven, or the number of sevens, not the number of fourteens, but the number of sevens. We have two sevens plus two sevens plus two sevens, so we have six sevens. So the seventh day is a day of rest, and the seventh year. Is also meant as a rest for the land, but here we have six sevens. So we have Sabbath approaching. We have six weeks of generations completed, which gives us the idea that the Sabbath is coming. It's time for the Sabbath. In other words, it's time to think of the messianic age. So in Genesis one, heavens and the earth are created. Over a period of six days, and humans are created on the sixth day. So six is a human number, and seven is a sacred number, a divine number. So we have this combination of six and seven, six sevens, a human number and a divine number. So we can think of these six sevens like six days, or six years, or six weeks of generations. The time of human labouring is completed, and we come to the generation of Sabbath. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, "Come to me, and I will give you rest." Just like in the genealogy, we arrive at Jesus as a symbol of Sabbath. And the idea of Sabbath is supposed to be something that. Is beneficial to humans, rather than being burdensome to humans, and this is a discussion that Jesus has about who can be arbiter of what is bringing rest, who can be the arbiter of of what is bringing rest on the Sabbath. Well, it's the true human, the human one, is Lord of the Sabbath. So, in in that example. Jesus is represented as the true human. Also, some interpreters like to see the six sevens as the number six representing the human nature of the Christos, and the number seven representing the divine nature. So we have this combination of human and divine in the idea of six. Sevens, which reminds some interpreters of Jesus's humanity and divinity. Interpretation number eight. It's all about the fourteenth as the date of Passover, the fourteenth as a date on the calendar. Now you'll notice that there's a few interpretations that are based on some kind of calendar counting. If we look at the Jewish calendar used in the first century, we have several festivals celebrated on the fourteenth, the fourteenth of the first month, and the fourteenth of the twelfth month, and we have a third festival in the first century, according to Josephus. That also occurs on the fourteenth, the fourteenth of the fifth month, 
the festival of wood offering. Perhaps the most intriguing festival for Matthew is the 14th of the first month, which commemorates the Passover. So the original Passover is about the firstborn sons of Israel not dying. The firstborn sons were saved from death and also celebrates the exodus from Egypt. And the 14th of the 12th month celebrates the whole nation being saved from genocide. So it's interesting that two of these festivals on the 14th are about being saved from death. But the one that stands out immediately in the book of Matthew is the Passover festival. Because towards the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is focused on celebrating his last meal, his last supper with his disciples and celebrating a Passover meal. There's a lot of uncertainty around the date that Jesus is handed over to be killed by the Romans. It is perhaps a little bit clearer in John. Most people presume that John says that Jesus is killed probably on the 14th, although that's, that's still debated. There's still a bit of controversy about the exact date. But perhaps Matthew is saying that Jesus is to be linked with the Passover commemoration. So was it the 14th that Jesus is abandoned by his disciples? Was it the 15th that Jesus was killed? And what's interesting here is in the second century, it's quite a big debate about when to commemorate Jesus's death. Should it be commemorated according to the day of the week or the day of the month? And eventually the position from Rome managed to stop most Christians from celebrating Easter according to a Jewish calendar. But it seems to be quite popular in the second century to commemorate Jesus' death on the 14th. So perhaps that's what 14 and 14 and 14 could be alluding to here. First festival of the year that occurs on the 14th, which changes its significance for the early Christians because it becomes about Jesus as the new Passover lamb. Interpretation number nine. It's all about Israel and the bride, or Israel as bride, or Rachel's number according to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, 14 is not only the number of betrothal, it's also a genealogical number, like our verse in Matthew. The number 14 occurs three times in the book of Genesis. One of these occurrences is about kings rebelling against other kings and Abraham is involved. That's not relevant to the book of Matthew. But the other two occurrences of the word 14 are potentially relevant. And these two occurrences are both about Rachel in relation to Jacob. The number 14 occurs at the beginning of Rachel's story and at the end of Rachel's story. And the second time is quite relevant to us because it occurs within the context of a genealogy. And in fact, if I had to choose one other verse in the whole Bible that sounded like our verse 
in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it would be this verse in Genesis chapter 46, verse 22. Not only does it occur within the context of a genealogy and refers to the number 14 and uses the word all, just like our verse, but 14 also is used as part of a larger number. In fact, both times 14 is used as Rachel's number, it's as part of a larger number, as a subtotal. So 14 is a subtotal of a larger number, just like 14 is a subtotal in our verse in Matthew chapter 1. The verse that describes Rachel's descendants, it says, These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 lives in all. The number 14 in the book of Genesis can be described as Rachel's number. So 14 is the number of years that Rachel is betrothed to Jacob, who is also known as Israel. And 14 is the number of descendants of Rachel born to Jacob. And what's interesting about the first 14 of Rachel is that Rachel is betrothed to Israel. Rachel waits for a period of 14 years to marry Jacob. And this symbol of bride and Israel, this is commonly used by the early Christians, where the believers in the Messiah are referred to as the bride of the Messiah. So perhaps we're not just meant to think that it's time for the Messiah to be revealed, but to think of the bride awaiting the Messiah. Instead of Israel being the groom, the Messiah is the groom, and Israel becomes the bride. Interpretation number 10. It's all about the numeral 14, which is written 10-4. This is a bit like interpretation number 1 and number 2, except this time it's the other way around. This time it's about spelling the numeral 14. So this time, rather than finding a name that might add up to 14 by reading the letters of the name as numerals. In this interpretation, interpretation number 10, it's about writing the numeral 14 and then reading it as a word. So when the, the numeral 14 is written, it's, it's the 10th letter and the 4th letter, it spells a word. So when you write 14, it spells a word in Hebrew. So Yod Dalet is also a common Hebrew word. It's the word hand. So just like interpretation number one and interpretation number two, interpretation number ten only works in Hebrew. So Yad in Hebrew is a common word for hand, but it's commonly used by extension to mean authority or power or dominion or strength. And so in this case, the implication of saying hand, 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 it's really referring to the rule of God or the dominion or the kingdom. This is why I think interpretation number one seems to do so well because it relies on the idea of extending the idea of David to mean some kind of kingdom or reign or dominion 
So there's a couple of advantages of interpretation number 10 over and above interpretation number 1, because interpretation 1 relies on extending the idea of David into the idea of a kingdom. But interpretation number 10, the idea of dominion or kingdom is already present in the word Yad. And also doesn't necessarily say whose kingdom it is, whereas interpretation number one seems to presume that it's a Davidic kingdom. In interpretation number 10, it doesn't need to be a Davidic kingdom that's arriving. What's arriving could be simply the kingdom of God, or in Matthean language, heaven's kingdom. And another advantage of interpretation 10 is that it's a common rabbinic idea to to read a word first as a numeral and then to reread it as another word. So when Rabbi Ariel Bar Zadok produced his podcast on the book of Matthew, the first thing he thought of was this idea of reading the word Yad. So it's more likely that Yad would work, but once again it only works in Hebrew. But there is a Hebrew version of Matthew which we're not sure how ancient this Hebrew version is. It, it might only be a thousand years old. And so when, when it writes, all the generations are 14, it writes, Yad, which can be read as either a numeral or a word. Also, one of our oldest surviving manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, it writes 14 as a numeral obviously using the equivalent Greek letters, Yota Delta. Interpretation number 11. It's all about what 14 signifies in the Roman world. Now, this is something that hasn't been explored very much. But we know that the book of Matthew is written somewhere in the Roman Empire. So what does 14 signify in the Roman Empire? Interestingly enough, 14 in the Roman world has a lot to say about masculinity, society, and the Roman Empire. 14 is the minimum age in Roman society that a boy can begin to wear the toga. So the toga is a long, circular, woolen cloth. It's difficult to put on. It's folded a particular way so that the right arm is left free and the left arm is covered. It wasn't particularly comfortable, but it was a sign of Roman citizenship. Fourteen is a coming of age as a transition from boyhood to manhood, transitioning into beginning of maturity. Before age 14, children could not be prosecuted for crimes. Children were not considered capable of criminal intent until age 14. 14 is also the minimum age for a man to marry, because in the Greco-Roman world, 14 was thought to be the minimum age that a man was capable of reproducing. A man could not procreate before the age of 14. So it is interesting that we've got 14 in the context of a genealogy, which is about inheriting something from previous generations. 
And here we perhaps have the idea of inheriting something more. Something more is becoming. 14, 14, 14. 14 itself is a number of maturation. And so it makes sense to find the number 14 within the context of a genealogy, especially in the Roman world where 14 is the the minimum age of reproducing. So perhaps 14 represents a coming of age. And we can think of this in terms of society as a coming of age of society. And so within a genealogy, we've got this question of what is it that's being reproduced? What is it that's being inherited? And what is it that's developing or becoming? We could see 14 as indicating that something is developing, something is emerging. So that's another reason why the number 14 could be significant within a genealogical account. 14 is a legal age in terms of clothing, marriage, and being legally responsible for actions. Basically, age 14 is the end of an immature form of masculinity and the beginning of maturation. And we could say that 14 represents the beginning of having to take responsibility for one's actions. It's no longer about what a boy can get away with, but it's about what a man needs to take responsibility for, responsibility for his own actions and how these actions affect others in society. This is not to say that the idea of masculinity in the Roman world was particularly healthy. There's a lot of toxic elements to it. But it is interesting that the number 14 can symbolize the coming of age. And, by extension, we could even think of this as a coming of age of society. And so seeing 14 as a development in terms of society and stages of society, this is a little bit like what I was talking about last time in episode 3, about the three stages of development, the three-part pattern in the genealogy. And for those listeners who might be interested in stages of masculinity, Joseph Gelfer has researched the five stages of masculinity within society. So listeners might want to check out Gelfer's five stages. Also, 14 could symbolize the city of Rome, because Rome was comprised of 14 regions. So 14 can enumerate Rome, just like the seven hills could enumerate Rome, the 14 regions could enumerate Rome. Also, Rome's relationship to the rest of the world could also be symbolized by the number 14. The Roman Empire was thought to be expanding to all over the known world, and it was the number 14 that was used to symbolize the rest of the world, the 14 nations, the 14 nations that Rome was subduing. There's a very similar idea in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when at Pentecost all these languages are being spoken, and we have languages of Judea and 14 other nations. So this idea of expansion is not in order to dominate like Rome, but 14 nations being included in some kind of an expansion that's beneficial for the rest of the world. 
So if in the Roman Empire, 14, 14, 14 would remind someone of Rome's expansion into the rest of the world and dominating the rest of the world, how does this relate to the book of Matthew, which ends with Jesus commissioning the disciples to go into the rest of the world? Is the end of the book of Matthew a similar model of colonizing the rest of the world, like Rome? Well, some people read it this way, but I think it's a bit of a stretch. The end of the book doesn't have any language about converting the nations. It just has Jesus telling his disciples to disciple and to teach the nations. And this is basically asking them to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did for them. He discipled and taught them. It doesn't have forceful language. It doesn't even have conversion language. It just has the disciples being asked to disciple and teach the nations. That's basically asking them to to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, because he has just discipled them and taught them. It's very difficult to teach someone something that you you don't know. If you haven't learnt, if I haven't learnt a musical instrument, I would find it very difficult to teach somebody else that musical instrument. So we certainly can't see that the disciples are being expected to teach something that they haven't learnt. It's not going to be a very successful way of, of teaching. So they'll need to first keep learning what Jesus has been trying to teach them. It seems that they still have some way to go in this task of learning what Jesus has been trying to teach them. But we can see that, that at the end of the book, we have 11 Jewish disciples who are expected somehow to go out and, and to teach Gentiles. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to read it as a dominating kind of outreach. And so someone reading the book of Matthew within the Roman Empire would probably pick up that 14, 14, 14, and then the book ending with this outreach to the rest of the world. They would probably see the resemblance there with the Roman Empire, but then they would probably notice that it's missing that edge of domination. So here we have the idea possibly of 14 being a symbol of the rest of the world, something that is expanding to include the rest of the world. So there's quite a few interesting ways of interpreting the number 14 in the Roman world, particularly in relation to masculinity and society. It's particularly interesting that the number 14 can signify the rest of the world. Rome's perception of subduing and conquering the rest of the world while expanding its empire. But in the Gospels, the idea of expansion is is not about having power over. Rome's power is always power over. But in the Gospels, it's power with. It's, it's an empowering expansion. So we could see 14 as an inclusive expansion. So overall, we have 14 as an important number, as a coming of age, a transition from an immature form of masculinity into a more mature 
masculinity, of accountability. And by extension, we could see it as being about a coming of age of society in general, as though it was time for Jesus' contemporary society to come of age and to listen to what Jesus as the Christos had to say to his generation about inheriting the kingdom of the dawning age. And it is particularly interesting to think of 14, 14, 14 as signalling that something is developing or needs to develop, uh, especially in terms of society's idea of masculinity, needing to re-examine its idea of masculinity and to begin to grow up and mature so a new kind of age can begin. An age that is greater and more mature than any previous age. One that is based on inclusivity and power with, rather than power over or against. Interpretation number 12. It's all about the Toledot headings from the book of Genesis. So Toledot is a Hebrew word that's not easy to get a simple translation in English. It's often translated the generations of or the genesis of, which we talked about in verse 1. Uh, it can also be translated the history of, the family story of. I recently heard a lecture by Rabbi Zavi Grummet and he was translating it as legacy of. So this genealogical account that we're dealing with in Matthew might be intended to be offering a an equivalent Toledot heading in verse 1. So the first 17 verses could be described as a Toledot. And there is a Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Hebrew version does use Toledot, Sefer Toledot, the book of the generations of. And if we count the number of times this heading is used in Scripture prior to the book of Matthew, there are 13 uses of this Toledot heading. So perhaps the book of Matthew is providing a 14th Toledot. So that's why 14 is prominent. Now this is not one of the stronger interpretations, but it does have one thing going for it, and that's the idea that what is being written in the book of Matthew seems to have some kind of self-conscious awareness of providing something that is on par with Scripture, a sacred writing that would also become known as Scripture. Interpretation number 13 is that there are not 14 generations in the third group, which means that the task of interpretation is to try to figure out who is the missing generation. So perhaps this is a puzzle that's been put there deliberately by the writer. Well, not everyone agrees that it's deliberate. Ulrich Luz says we're not supposed to check. It's not a deliberate omission. We're not supposed to check. We're supposed to just take the writer's word for it. 
and this is why it comes at the end of the genealogical account. We're not supposed to notice that there aren't 14. But what happens if we do discover that there's a missing generation? Well, there are various ways to go about this. One idea is to treat Jesus and Christos as two separate generations. So Jesus is the 13th generation, and the Christ is a 14th generation. So Jesus and Christ are counted as two separate generations, as though the Messiahship is a role that's separate from Jesus, but combined in the one person. St. Hilary of Poitiers, which used to be our oldest surviving commentary on Matthew chapter 1, thought that we should count Jesus and the Christos as two separate generations because Jesus was generated in both a divine sense and human sense. Another idea is that the missing generation's got something to do with the expression and his brothers, which appears in the first group. It also appears in the second group, But there's no and his brothers in the third group. But and his brothers does seem to be significant at the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus says to go tell his brothers. So perhaps Jesus' disciples are the 14th generation. Either the first disciples or the later disciples that include the readers of the Gospel of Matthew. This interpretation has recently been suggested by Merrill Kitchen. Another solution is to take Mary and Joseph as two separate generations. And another solution is to count Jesus' biological father. According to the interpretation by Jane Schaberg, there was already a biological father for Jesus, not Joseph, but a different biological father, and that that father could be counted as a separate generation. And another interpretation is to count the Holy Spirit as a generation. And in what's now our oldest surviving commentary, in a recent discovery, we have our oldest commentary by Fortunatiatus. And Fortunatiatus includes two fathers for Joseph. So he includes Joseph's father's name from the Gospel of Luke so that he can get the 14th generation in there as though there's some kind of Levite marriage that can account for two fathers of Joseph. Another option in the commentary by Jerome at the end of the 4th century, he follows the idea of Ambrose, suggests that there's a copy error and that there's really two Jeconias. There's Jehoiakim and Jeconiah. So they represent two different generations. One's a father and one's a son, and they've been collapsed into one person. And the solution suggested by John Chrysostom is to not count two Jeconias, but to count the exile into Babylon as if it were a generation itself. Now, is there a missing generation? Well, it depends whether we start counting Jeconiah in the third group. And the reason why many commentators only count 13 in the final group 
is because they don't count Jeconiah. And so you end up with a missing generation. But if we count Jeconiah as one, then Shealtiel is two, Zerubbabel is three, Abiud is four, Eliakim five, Azor six, Zadok seven, Achim eight, Eliud nine, Eleazar ten, Mathen eleven, Jacob twelve, Mary and Joseph thirteen, Jesus fourteen. So why don't commentators start counting at Jeconiah? Well, that's because they've already counted Jeconiah at the end of the second group. So really, it's the second group that has too many names rather than the third group not having enough names. But that also depends where you start counting from at the beginning of the second group. So there's more than one way to count 14 in the third group. The simplest way is to double count David, to count David twice, once at the end of the first group and then again as, as the beginning of the second group, and then not count Jeconiah until the third group. And there's a few scholars who have argued this in recent years, namely Stephen Carlson and Danny Zacharias. So basically there's more than one way to count the third group so that we do end up with 14. Interpretation number 14. It's all about the cosmic calendar. Interpretation 14 is my suggested solution in how to read verse 17. And it's all about reading it as some kind of cosmic calendar, which I talked a little bit about in episode 3. There is a minimal amount that we are expected to read into the text. And so at minimum, we are encouraged to think about calculating the timing of the Messiah's birth. For someone wondering when will the Messiah be born, the text is attempting to answer this question. We can take it for granted that having 14 and 14 and 14 generations expresses a numerical kind of answer that is meant to suggest that it was time for the Messiah to be born But there is a further aspect for us to notice. And in episode 3 I covered most of this, namely the intended correspondences between the 14th point at the end of each of the three groups of generations. I won't go over that again right now. But there is something else. There's one final observation about this messianic calendar Rather than thinking of this 14-generational gap as a length of time on a calendar, perhaps instead the text is encouraging us to see the 14th as correspondences like dates on a calendar. So the 14th interpretation is simply that our verse is pointing out that each of these three significant events occur on the 14th of a cosmic calendar. These three significant events all occur on the same date. And there is an ancient Jewish tradition which goes back to the rabbinic period. And this tradition says that the same date that the temple is destroyed, the Messiah is born. 
not necessarily the same year, but the same date. On the date that the temple is destroyed, the Messiah is born. And this is what we find in our verse, in Matthew 1.17. On the same date that the temple was destroyed, the Messiah is born. Actually, we've got three events in Matthew that are occurring on the same date. We have all three events, the rise of David, the fall of the temple, and the birth of the Messiah. All three on the same date. So the minimum amount that we're expected to read into this gap is to think of these three significant events occurring on the same date of this cosmic calendar. So then, what conclusions are we to draw from all of this? What do we make of all of this? We've looked at numerous interpretations, but how do we deal with having multiple interpretations? In the end, what we need is a way to cope with having multiple interpretations, because there are just so many interpretations. The more interpreters, the more interpretations. What we need is a way of coping with multiple interpretations, not just surviving short term, but thriving in the long term. How do we interact in a healthy way with multiple interpretations? And perhaps there's a way of doing this where we develop a generous mind and generous heart. A greater perspective is one that includes more perspectives. Every time I come across another interpretation, I think, oh, that's a bit different. But then I think, oh, that's quite interesting. It, it could be onto something. In fact, that's quite possible. And then again, I come across another interpretation. I think, oh, that's a bit different. But, oh, that's quite possible too. Yeah. I can imagine that if the writer found out about some of these interpretations, the writer might say, oh, yes, that's, um, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's pretty good. Remember that it's the writer who placed this gap, who deliberately left this gap open. The text is encouraging readers to think outside the box, to read outside the text, and to read into the gap. This episode has been all about a gap in the text. So the text is not defining an answer. It seems that the text is inviting us to read something into the text. And different people will do this in different ways. Different eyes will see different things. For example, one person will hear 14, 14, 14 and think, Oh yes, 14, that's the number of years that Abraham and Sarah waited for the birth of Isaac. 14 years of waiting for the promise of a child for Sarah. 14 years until the child of miraculous birth. So that makes sense why it says that the child of miraculous birth 
Jesus, the one called Christos, born to Mary, comes after 14 generations. Another interpreter will say, well, I know there's not exactly 14 in each list, but fair enough. It's a rounded number to make the point that the Messiah arrives providentially. And another interpreter will hear 14 and think, 14? Isn't that the number of judges who were providentially raised up to lead the people in Israel before there were any kings? 14 prophet-like judges who led the people and who saved them from being harassed by Israel's enemies? Perhaps 14 must signify another kind of saviour is on the way, a prophet-like saviour who would be intent on saving the people from some kind of problem. Another interpreter will say, 14, oh, wasn't it 14 years after the first temple was destroyed that Ezekiel received a vision of a new temple? Another interpreter might say, oh, 14. Weren't there 14 steps leading up from the outer court of the temple to the inner court of the temple in the first century? And so to get back to the question, what do we do about all these different interpretations? How do we deal with having so many interpretations? Surely the task is not to try to limit the number of interpretations. Who's to say that we should be limiting the number of interpretations? Who's to say that there's only one interpretation that fits? Especially if the text itself is open. It's not closing down interpretations then why would we want to shut down interpretations? It means that we're shutting down the perspectives of others. But it also means that we're shutting down our own ability to become aware of our own interpretation and where that's coming from. At the beginning of the episode, I asked listeners to think about which interpretation is your preferred interpretation. And the reason is to think, begin to think about why some interpretations are preferred. Because someone's preferred interpretation is quite informative about their own perspective and their own life experiences, including their own experience of cultural norms. We can't exclude trying to understand our own interpretation and where that's coming from. If we can understand that our own interpretation is shaped by our own life experiences. We can begin to appreciate this in other people. Other people's interpretations come from their own life experiences. So if we're shutting down someone's interpretation, we're shutting down our own ability to be cultivating empathy. And when we practice considering multiple interpretations, it helps to cultivate empathy. One of the things to avoid is the idea that we can avoid our own preferred perspective. The idea that we can avoid our own perspective is a very unhelpful myth. We simply can't avoid having our own biases. The most effective interpreter tries to become familiar with their own biases and to try and understand how they have developed. If we ignore our own biases, they're just going to be reasserted in less conscious ways. 
So the better we can appreciate the contours of our own perspective, this enables further self-compassion and self-understanding, which enables compassion and understanding for another perspective. Because we begin to see that other perspectives are also perspectives that have been developed and shaped by their life experiences. And we also need to be aware that some interpretations will be raw and vulnerable, and we might need to be tender with some of the interpretations that people share. And another effect of exploring multiple interpretations is to begin to see a bigger picture of interpretation. And this is very helpful for beginning to identify patterns, and it's very helpful for interpreting an ancient text like the book of Matthew. And finally, what has any of this got to do with masculinity? Well, trying to come to terms with multiple interpretations is very similar to having to deal with multiple kinds of masculinity. Just like there are multiple perspectives and interpretations, there are multiple perspectives and experiences of masculinity. So what has any of this got to do with masculinity? Well, nothing and everything. There's nothing explicitly about masculinity in verse 17 unless we go with interpretation number 11 and read masculinity into the text. But on the other hand, it's got everything to do with masculinity. Just as we can honour the perspective of other interpretations... We can honour the variety of perspectives and kinds of masculinity. Just as there are as many perspectives as there are people, there are as many kinds and experiences of masculinity as there are people. Just as it would be ludicrous to say that there's only one valid kind of interpretation, it would be ludicrous to say that there's only one valid kind of masculinity. And so there isn't really a limit on the number of or kind of masculinities. And so, just as at the beginning of this episode, I invited you to think about your own preferred interpretation, I would also like to invite you to think about your own masculinity in terms of both your experience of masculinity and your preferred masculinity. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening.